Good morning, Anthem Online. Thank you again for joining us um, for this online worship experience. We wanted to remind you, Anthem is not just for the young. It is also for the young at heart. Uh, this is my daughter here, Poppy, and she is a part of our service every week. And so we thank you and invite you to invite all of your family and friends that would enjoy this experience to join us, please, on a weekly basis. We'd love to have them as a part of this community. Want to share something so exciting. Last week, it was an incredible time of worship. The entire day, we had the morning service, and we also had our EP release concert, which means our EP is now available on all streaming platforms for you to enjoy. Please go look it up. It is under the artist name Anthem Worship, and the album is called Universal Hearts. It has six tracks on it. Five of them are originals from Anthem, and we provided them for you, for you and your communities to worship to, both in private and corporately. We would love for you to share these with your churches and have your churches um, join our community in this endeavor of spreading the gospel through music to the world. Thank you for being here again. We are excited you're here. We're excited for what the Lord is doing. We believe that you are a part of that movement. So with that, let's get started with worship. Father, we come to you. We come to you asking that you do something new in our lives, that you utilize us somehow, some way to impact our sphere of influence for your kingdom. For we pray in your name. Amen. Now the poet. Well, the poet isn't as recognized as some of his contemporaries. Names like T.S. Eliot or Ezra Pound. But make no mistake about it, he's every bit as influential. After all, it was him that created a new form of poetry, one that sought to bring together different ideas and words in order for you and I to make mental images and then to interpret them. I take his most famous work as a prime example, a pithy poem entitled The Red Wheelbarrow. It reads like this. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow, glazed with rainwater, besides the white chickens. And that's it. Like literally, that's the whole poem. And I know that in your mind, there's like a bunch of questions that you have begun to ask yourselves. Questions like, I thought poems were supposed to rhyme. Or maybe some of you are asking questions about form and function. Questions like, where's the meter? Where's the metric structure? And perhaps some of you are asking even more basic questions. You know, questions like the one my mom asked of me when I attempted to tell my first joke. So here I am at five years old saying, Mom, why did the chicken cross the road? And my mom looks back at me and without missing a beat says, who let the chickens out? <laughs> and perhaps that's the kind of question you want to ask. Question like, questions like, why are those chickens out of the coop? Or who would leave a wheelbarrow out to get wet? Don't they know it's going to rust? Or maybe, just maybe, you're asking, why does so much depend on this tool? Well, the poets and the aficionados, the writers and the professors, they'll tell you that William Carlos Williams is attempting to do something. 
They'll tell you that the wheelbarrow is a symbol for construction and the growth of civilization. And that the chickens, well, if you could believe that, the chickens represent the countless farms that will be impacted by progress in the heartland of our country. In the hands of a lesser poet, those words, uh, those words just seem like a mishmash of awkward language. Now, to be sure, the poet, oh, the poet knew a lot about awkwardness. The year was 1948, and William Carlos Williams had suffered a heart attack. Several strokes followed, and so he was sure that he was going to die. At death's door, he wanted to relieve his conscience, and so he didn't call a pastor or a priest. He called his wife. William was a notorious Lothario, a womanizer, and so he began to confess. To confess to the countless affairs, all the ways in which he had wronged his wife. He emptied his heart and his soul, and then when he was done, he proceeded to live for another 14 years. Can you imagine Thanksgiving the next year? Can you picture the table at Christmas or at any following family reunion in the years after that? One word comes to mind. Awkward. And you and I know a lot about awkwardness, don't we? We know about awkwardness in our worship services. And perhaps you come to Anthem and refuse to even make eye contact with the baristas and the line of people waiting to get their coffee. And then you rush into the place and you're feeling so much exuberance because you're hopeful that all the smoke that we have in here will hide you somehow. You open your Bible and you bury your eyes in it and then hoping against hope that no one, none of these wonderful greeters will even see you because you don't want to invest or engage in an awkward conversation. And then, then relief comes. Relief because at the first moment that Pastor Josh plays the first chord in the guitar, you know. You know that for the next 45 minutes to an hour, depending on who's preaching, you will be left alone. No more awkwardness. But then you read the words. You read the words that have served as our clarion call during this summer series. You read the words that we find in Acts chapter 2, and you begin to just get a little bit uncomfortable. As you know, we've been dwelling in verses 42 through 47, but today, and just for today, I want to invite you to meditate particularly in the final two verses of the passage. This is what Luke writes. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 
Let me say that again. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I so hope that we as Anthem can become a community where the Lord is adding to our number daily, not so that we can lord over people, not so that we can say we've got the best show in town, but so that their lives may be completely transformed. But you know what? This miracle, this miracle that is Luke's ideal picture of the church is preceded yet by another miracle. One that happens in the very same chapter. Think about the words that he pens in Acts chapter 2 verses 6 through 8. When they heard this sound, speaking of Gentiles, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. You see, the miracle of the church is preceded by the miracle of Pentecost worship. There's a conclave of people coming from every corner of the world and then they hear it. They hear the gospel in their own language. Make no mistake about it, the first miracle that God does with his church is a miracle of intimacy. Because when they hear the, their own language, that mother tongue that they learned as they were tykes on the knees of their parents, they've recognized something. We're no longer separate. We belong to each other. Here's the truth. The truth is rather sad and disconcerting because too often Christian worship has been about attempting to homogenize. And we say to each other, we believe in high liturgy. We believe that the doxology must begin with praise God from whom all blessings flow. And then you've got this other crowd that says, well, we don't really like that. We want a more contemporary, more modern expression of our faith. But 2,000 years ago, the Spirit told us that worship wasn't a style. Worship is an experience. Worship within the Christian church is the experience of fully giving ourselves over to the spirit of translation. And so here at Anthem, here at Anthem, we want to say that we today are calling a truce on the worship wars because we believe that whatever language we speak, our God is great enough to be able to address that, us in our mother tongue. And what does that look like? Where well, Annie Dillard, in her book, Teaching Stones How to Think and Talk, tells us about the experience of letting the spirit loose in a church. She writes, what surprises me the most is that Christians approach church services much like tourists approach a prepackaged tour of the absolute. Do we really have an idea of the power we so blithely invoke? It is madness, madness, I tell you, to wear hats 
in our services. Instead, our greeters ought to give us crash helmets. They should provide flares and life preservers, making sure that we are firmly strapped into our seats because when we let the Spirit loose in our worship, it's going to be a bumpy ride. It was my first church. And the praise music had begun to play and something happened, something that never happens with Adventists. Gloria Estefan got a hold of me. Because as that praise band was singing, you better believe it, the rhythm was going to get me. And so I started swaying. And then for some strange reason, I had this out-of-body experience where I lifted my hand up into the air. And then I felt it. The press of a hand that st- of the person standing before me, making sure that I lowered my hands. Up they went again, again they lowered, and I can't even remember what the service was about because we were engaged in hand-to-hand combat. When the Spirit is let loose in our church, it's going to be a bumpy ride. So can I invite you, Anthem community, to do something with me? Can we just push through the awkwardness and realize that when God is speaking our own tongues and when the Spirit is moving effectively and efficiently in our church, we replace awkwardness for intimacy, for closeness, Acts tells us that they ate together and they went to the temple together. But that miracle of togetherness in homes was preceded by the miracle of togetherness in language. And so today, we want to craft a unified language regardless of what worship style you prefer, regardless of how you want to come dressed to church. We all are called to speak the same language and that language is Jesus and Christ crucified. Brandon O'Brien, a pastor and theologian, notices something about this passage that we are invested in this morning. He says that what's really interesting is that as the Spirit was moving in the early church, they didn't stay in Jerusalem. These 3,000 people didn't get together and say, hmm, I think it's time that we form the first mega church, 3,000 charter members, first Pentecostal church of Jerusalem. No, they went out. They went out to every corner of the Mediterranean world. So it shouldn't surprise us that years later, in the provinces of Asia Minor, seven house churches receive a letter, a letter from their pastor, their prophet, a man named John stuck on an island called Patmos. And as they're reading this letter, they come to the fourth and the fifth chapter. And these two chapters represent the most moving and powerful scene in worship of the whole 
Bible. And it begins, it begins with a door. John chapter, John says that in Revelation chapter four, he looks up and behold, he sees a door. Now, I always thought that there was this chasm between heaven and earth. But here John is getting this backstage pass into what it means to live and see God's world. And so he steps right in. And can you imagine that level of access, that level of intimacy to the most powerful being in the universe? Perhaps an illustration will help me solidify that point. After Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, his predecessor for you history buffs was, well, he was impeached. And reconstruction began. And so the conflicts that were had in America were transferred to Congress. By that point, the legislative branch wanted no part in a powerful executive. And so they began to slash the budget of the presidency. They slashed it time and time again until if you were to go by 1600 at Pennsylvania Avenue during the presidency of Grover Cleveland and you would have knocked on the door, the president himself would have had to get up from his desk, descend the stairs and open the door. And can you picture that? You've gone on a tour and now you're face to face with the most powerful person in the free world. Well, this is what John is encountering. And as John enters, he sees them. He sees four living creatures. And the description of them is as follows. One has the face of a woman, the other an ox, the other a lion, and finally a bird. And so these four living creatures are intended to represent all of creation, human beings, the king of the domesticated animals, the oxen, the king of the wild beasts, the ferocious lying, and the most powerful of all birds, the eagle. And in this cosmic liturgy, what is creation doing? Well, read with me. Revelation chapter 4, the last part of verse 8 says that they are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. Creation itself not only is groaning for salvation, it is desperate to sing his praises. And then John steps back, and as he does, he sees them. 24 elders intended to represent both the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. In other words, this is the whole church. And the church is right there with creation, and they are also singing. And verse 11 says that their song sounds a little like this. You are worthy, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will were created. They were created and have their being. And so at the heart of the song is the simplest reality of them all. God reigns. God reigns. 
No matter what you have made of your life, it doesn't matter the kind of fantasies you've believed in that shape now your destiny. God reigns, and that is good news. God is God, and the idols that we have in our heart, those things that we grasp so tightly, well, those aren't God. So what's the difference between the song that creation is singing and the song that the church sings? Well, there there is one key difference in Revelation chapter 4, and that is that the song of the elders gives a rationale for worship. Creation might sing, they might praise God for creating us, but we, the church, continues to utter praises because God has done something in our lives. Let me repeat that to you if you haven't grasped it yet. The reason why you are sitting in this church today is because at some point in your life, God has done something in your life. God reigns in your life. And so the true purpose of worship as it pertains to the church is that we are called to witness by testifying and providing answers to the world's whys. And the world, let's face it, church, has a lot of whys. Why is there famine? Why earthquakes? Why disease? Why has my relationship disintegrated? There are so many whys that the world asks. And the church, the church utters praise and worship in order to attempt to witness and provide a because. We are staunchly entrenched in this church because God has done something in your life. And so... So, the scene progresses. It moves into chapter 5. It builds in a crescendo, and then there's a problem in heaven, a problem that makes John weep. There's a scroll. A scroll that is sealed. And if you're part of the original audience that John is writing to, if you're part of one of these house churches, you would have known what that scroll was. For you see, when a Roman emperor was enthroned, they would carry in their hand a scroll. And that scroll was intended to contain contain every single petition, request, and dream of his subjects. And the implication was this, the Roman emperor is so powerful that he will give you what you need. Well, John weeps because he knows He knows that that scroll that is sealed represents his dreams, his requests, his petitions. He knows that that scroll represents God's desire for the world, but it is closed. And no one is found worthy to open. Worthy. Worthy. It shouldn't surprise you that John chooses that word. Same emperor would ride back into Rome, and when he would drive in his chariot, people would clamor throughout the streets, you are worthy. And John weeps because even Rome in all its might and power 
can't fulfill the, can't fulfill the deepest needs of the human heart. And just as he is giving up, he hears the message that there is one, that there is one who is worthy. And he hears, he hears a roar that startles him, that fills him with dread. And then he turns, he turns because he has heard the roar of the lion and he sees expecting to find a lion ready to pounce. And instead, instead he sees a lamb. The church through its worship is commanded to hear the lion but to see the lamb. Do our worship expressions reveal the power, the majesty, and the might of the lion of the tribe of Judah? When we sing, do we recognize the gulf that exists between creator and creature? But are we also able to share the beauty, the simplicity, the gentleness of the gospel that is embodied in the Lamb. The good news that John is telling his church at worship is this, the lion reveals the lamb and the lamb remains a lion. It's almost as if John knows that this tension is there intended to make us recognize that when it comes to worship, well, when it comes to worship, what is actually going on is that my desires are muting the divine designs for my life. And so, so he hears the song, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, for through his blood he ransomed many. I love that language. I love that language because it would have meant something very different 2,000 years ago than it means today. In the Roman world, prisoners of war could be ransomed by a patron. You would pay this exorbitant amount of money and then your prisoner would be released. As he or she made it back, to their country, the only rule was that they had to be reintegrated into life as if nothing had happened. They didn't need to pay back the ransom. The only thing they needed to do was to remember their benefactor. Do we remember our benefactor with our worship? True Christian worship is intended to remind us of the character of God. Because the way you relate to God is foundational to the way you worship. So the year was 1996. And the Americans had not won the Olympics when it came to women's gymnastics for years. That discipline had been dominated by the Russians. And the Americans had done everything. They had changed their training. They had gone and hired new coaches. And here they were in Atlanta, Georgia, neck and neck. The gold medal would be decided in the final apparatus, the vault. Carrie Strug knew that that was her strongest discipline. 
The only problem was she had broken her ankle. She looked, she looked tears in her eyes at her coach. A hard man, a difficult man. Bella Caroli. And she said, I can't do it, coach. It hurts too much. And the coach looked back at her and said, yes, you can. Again, Carrie said, I cannot do it, coach. Caroli again, without a hint of empathy, said, you must do it. And so the gymnast approached the vault, ran as best she could, picked up speed, propelled herself into the air, landed perfectly. And the U.S. won the gold medal. Well, what the Wheaties commercials won't tell you is that after that Olympiad, Strug needed to retire. The damage that her ankle had sustained was so great that she would never practice gymnastics again. Fast forward, six Olympic cycles. Now America has been firmly entrenched as the dominant power in women's gymnastics. They travel to Tokyo, sure that they have the strongest team. After all, the most decorated gymnast in history is on their side. Again, her strongest apparatus is the vault. And so just like it happened in Atlanta, Simone Biles looks straight at that vault. Only something has changed that day. She hears those voices, those voices that she has sought to keep at bay for so long. Doubt begins to grow in her heart. And so at that moment, she decides to change her jump. She'll do two and a half twists instead. She races to the vault, picking up speed, and then as she hits the air, she panics. Something's wrong. She doesn't know where she is, and in a feat of complete athleticism, she manages to turn around one and a half turns and then land awkwardly. She just doesn't have it that day. And she knows that if she continues to compete, she might jeopardize her health and her team's chances at a medal. So she hobbles back and she looks at her coach and he says, I don't have it today, coach. And the coach lovingly says, it's okay, Simone. You're more important than a medal. Now the world will say that one is a champion and the other one cracked under pressure. But the way in which they will remember and experience their Olympiad is contingent on the relationship they have with their coach. The way you and I worship is contingent on the relationship we have with our coach. Is he a demanding, a demanding divine figure that asks for perfection and obedience? Or is he a loving coach that says you matter more than any crown and any medal? The New Testament scholar Luke Timothy Johnson says, 
that it's the church, it's us and not the world, that needs to be reminded of the miraculous power of the Spirit. And you know what? I've seen the Spirit move. I've seen it move this week. I've seen it move. I've seen it move as your Anthem community has gathered to break bread and to share it. Well, sometimes it's not bread, sometimes it's coffee. I've seen it as you picked up, whatchamacallit, bars, and you gave them to people, and you said, I'm part of a movement, a movement that understands who our coach is. We want to pray for you. Oh, I've seen it. I've seen it as we've participated this past week in a prayer line. And we began to write names both in our hearts and on literal pieces of paper. I've seen it in the member of this community that called that prayer line this week and was moved to tears. Not because the pastor's oratory was so articulate or moving, but because each day after we prayed, we unmuted the line and we let you pray and open your hearts. And in those chaotic noises, she heard God and she was moved to tears. I've seen the spirit move. I've seen that spirit that says it is time to forgo awkwardness and replace it with intimacy. I've seen it as intimacy is translated into an expression of worship that is akin to your language. I've seen it as we come together, different tribes, different tongues, different nations, to sing to our God, holy, holy, holy. I've seen it, and I know that from now and forever, God, God is gonna lead us on a bumpy ride. So I want you to do something. Throughout this week and the previous weeks, we've been asking you to join us in these live out challenges. Today, I don't have a challenge for you. I'm asking for your commitment. I'm asking you to say, I want to commit to the practices of Bible study, fellowship, prayer. I want to commit to this idea of service. I want to commit to allow God to speak in my own language. And then I want my worship to be an expression of that. Today, as we sing, holy, 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 if this is something you want to do, if this is something you want to commit to, won't you stand? Won't you stand with us as we sing to the one, the one who is worthy? Anthem Online Family. None of this happens without you. You are the reason that we are able to do this. Not just you, but in cooperation with all of us that are here present for the Anthem service. As a reminder, if you are in Southern California, even just visiting, we'd love to have you join us here. But as you're online, we want to remind you that there is a way to connect. There is a way to pour into you, and there is a way to be a part of this community, and that is through giving. We say it every week, two ways to give, via texting LLUC to the number 77977, or visit us online, lluc.org slash give. Find the Anthem section and give there. Thank you 
for your commitment. Thank you for your continued giving and support of this ministry. We are so thankful and grateful for your role in this. We hope you have an amazing week ahead. We hope you spend time with the album on Spotify, on Apple Music, and all the streaming platforms. And we look forward to seeing you next week, right here, same time, for Anthem Online. Have a great week.